the message. And we're going to look at the message of mission too. And, and, and I, I do this, and, and I do this every time before I preach. Uh, I do something that you're used to me doing, if you've been here any, for any time at all, is I pray. Because I realize this, if God the Holy Spirit does not move in our hearts and mind, this is in vain. He has to move. No, no matter how much preparation I put into to preparing, um, or how eloquent or non-eloquent I might be, if the Holy Spirit does not move, we're in trouble this morning. And I'm reminded of uh, Charles Spurgeon, who was a famous pastor. I, I mention him every once in a while in, in London back in the 1800s. And in the Metropolitan Tabernacle, the last building he preached in, is, it, set, it was an amazing building acoustically in those, built in those days. And um, still the main part of it, still most of it stands today. Part of it was burned down. But he had this pulpit that was elevated, like really elevated, because it had balcony. And the, if they elevate him just perfectly so the people down here could hear and the people in the balcony could hear, hear. And there was this, this staircase that wound up the back. And before Charles Spurgeon would speak, each step he would take, he'd say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Just reminding him, holy, if the Holy Spirit does not move, it doesn't matter what I say. Um, he's going to have to move in our hearts and minds for his word to take root in us, to convict us, to convert us, to convince us maybe of something. Um, to bring comfort where we need comforting. And, and so I just wish we had more stairs here this morning. And in our new building, we'll probably have like three, right? So I may make more trips up and down, I don't know. But just to remind us all of that. So let's go to the Lord and ask him to do what only he can do. Lord, um, we come to your word this morning. And we are helpless to understand it if the Holy Spirit does not open our hearts and our minds to understand what is here. Even in this passage this morning, Lord, we'll be reminded that there's many people in this world who have read your word over and over again, and they've missed the whole thing. So, Lord, we are at your mercy. We thank you for God, the Holy Spirit, who does open our hearts and minds, and we expect, Lord, you to do that today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, as we begin to think about this passage here this morning, I want just to imagine something, all of us to imagine something together, okay? Imagine that you are an ambassador of the United States of America to Russia, okay? Just imagine that's, that's your job, that's your responsibility to be an ambassador of the United States to Russia. And your responsibility is to communicate important information to Russia to help us maintain our good relations with the Russians, Imagine, too, that you've just been asked by the National Security Council uh, to come in to a meeting to deliver a very important message to the Russian President Vladimir Putin. So you come in the meeting with the National Security Council, and they give you the information, and they let you know as they're giving you the information that you're going to be meeting President Putin at the Summer Palace close to St. Petersburg, Russia. And your mind immediately goes to, wow, I've heard about the Summer Palace before. It's also called Peterhof. It's one of the most beautiful palaces in all the world. And your mind begins to think about this beautiful palace and the ornate fixtures all over, even the ornation and the colors on the outside of the building. Now, I don't have to picture this. I've been there. 
It's amazing. And you're just thinking, well, I've never visited there. I've been to Russia many times because I'm the ambassador to Russia. But I've never been there. I always wanted to go there. And you begin to think about that. And, and they adjourn the meeting. And you go and you, you go home and you begin to research the Summer Palace. It's also called Catherine's Palace or Peterhof as well. As well. And, and, and you're researching all these things and seeing the fountains. And just amazing about how the fountains were made back then in the 1700s and how they worked. And just, it's amazing. You're just so caught up in all that you can get to see. So you get out on a plane, you fly to Russia, and you do what you're supposed to. When you get to Russia, you take a whole day to rest before you do anything. And then the next day, they take you to the Summer Palace, just south of Petersburg, about 30 kilometers. And you get there, and you're ushered into this room, and it's just amazing. I mean, way more than like crown molding. I mean, this is like crown molding on steroids and colored and gold ceilings and just unbelievable. It's just beautiful, and you're just in awe. And then they usher in. President Vladimir Putin. And he comes and there's some pleasantries exchange and informal greetings and then you sit down and he says, well, what is the message that you're delivered to me? And you're at a loss for words because you can't remember what the message is. Now, the potential consequences of not knowing what the message is when you're standing before um, a country that we've had a little friction with in, in his, the history could be great not only for our country but maybe for some other countries. Could be severe for certain countries if the message isn't delivered right and you forget the message. Now come out of that imagination now and I want you to remi be reminded of this truth in 2 Corinthians 5.20. Well, somehow I didn't get that on there. I am sorry, but I'll give it to you anyway. It says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on, on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. We are Christ ambassadors, all of us that know him. And God delivers his message through us, the message of how we can be reconciled to God. Now, I don't know exactly. I didn't have even a message in mind if we would imagine about being an ambassador to Russia. But I guarantee you no message that we could deliver to Russia would be as important to them as a message that tells us how we can be made right with God, to be reconciled with God. There's no more important message than that in the world. We can't forget it. We can't get it wrong. Because God, in, in, his, in just the mystery of his will, has chosen to use us to get the message out. And that just amazes me. I mean, he could, like, ride it in the sky. He could do it any other way. But he chooses to use us as his ambassadors. We speak for him. We bring his message to the world. And I want to make sure, and I want to remind us of the importance of getting the message right. Because the consequences of not getting that message right are eternal. They're eternal, not temporal. There's a difference between heaven and hell. Well, it's not just enough to go on the, mess, the mission. We've seen this in the book of Acts and them going on mission and they're on the mission and understanding what the mission is but part of that mission and the big part of that mission, the foundation of that mission is the message that we deliver when we go. If we go and we have nothing to say, or if we say the wrong thing, then the, message, the mission's in vain. 
So this morning, I want us to look here as we study here in Acts 13. I want us to, to witness how Paul shares the gospel, the message of the mission, so that we too will be clear as we present the message of the mission to others. And, and as normal as we work through this, it's a narrative, it's a story. So I'm going to kind of just work down and talk through the story again. At the end, I want to bring up uh, four, four key points, I think, four key truths that help us be able to apply the truths of this passage in our own lives. But let's just remember the mission of the church as we, we was, was clearly set out by Jesus at the beginning of Acts. Acts 1.8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now I will probably, for the rest of our time in Acts, I don't know how long that's going to be. I mean, I'm taking a big chunk today, so I, I don't know, maybe 20 more messages. That's my guess, 15 to 20 more messages in Acts. Maybe 15. There's only 28 chapters, so that means I have to go one chapter the rest of the time. But I don't know, but I'm going to keep reminding us of this because if we get this, if we get Acts 1-8, we get Acts. If we don't get this, we don't get Acts. We don't understand why they run it all over the place. Why they're going here, why are they risking their life? Because this is the mission that Jesus gave them. And, and we've seen this fulfilled as we've studied through Acts. We've seen them go to Jerusalem with the gospel in Judea in Samaria, and now we're in the section of Acts where Paul becomes prominent and he's taken, he and his, his comrades in a sense are, are taking the gospel to the remotest parts of the earth. That's what's happening here. So last week we watched as Paul and Barnabas and John Mark set sail um, on Paul's, what's they call Paul's first missionary journey. Alright, they're, they're kind of labeled first, second, and third, labeled first, second, and third. Um, and he goes to the island of Cyprus. And while on Cyprus, the, they encounter uh, difficulty in the form of a guy named Bar Jesus. If you were here last week, you, remi- you remember him. And remember him. And he was he was teaching false doctrine. He was ter- teaching heresy as to how someone was reconciled to God. His message was wrong, and, and, and Paul boldly told him his message was wrong, and proclaimed what the truth was. And another guy there, the, the, basically the governor of Cyprus, named uh, Sergius Paulus, believed. He trusted in the message of the good news, how he could be reconciled to God, and his life was changed. So that's what we saw. Then let's pick up here this morning in, in um, verse 13. We read this last week too. I'll make a couple comments and we'll move on. It says, Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Pamphos and came to Perga, to Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. And we, 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 we see here that... that well, let's keep going through 15, and I'll come back. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath, they went into synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for, pe- for the people, say it. So we see here that Paul and his companions have continued their journey. They're moving on. Uh, as mentioned last week, John Mark leaves them. And you can read a lot of reasons why John Mark leaves them. I mentioned a few possibilities. Um, later on, we'll see in Acts that, that Paul wasn't excited about John Mark leaving them at all for they were getting ready to go on another missionary journey and Barnabas wants to take John Mark and he says, I'm, he's not going. He's a deserter. So whatever it is, it wasn't good. I don't know if that, Paul did the right thing by doing that. It's hard for us to judge that. There was friction. We do know that. So He left. Um, and it's recorded here. And I, I want us to, to look again at, at the map that I showed um, last week here. Um, so they, were, they, they started here in, in Antioch of Syria, came down to Seleucia, which is a port city, came to Salamis on Cyprus, go to Pampas. Now they're going to go to Perga, all right? And then they're going to make their way up to Antioch 
or Pisidian Antioch, all right? See Pisidia? It's called Pisidian. It's obviously different than the other Antioch, and that's important uh, in Scripture that we see that that's different. So that's where they are. We'll come back over here for you guys on this side, all right? They come down this way. Here they go up to Perga, and now we have them right here in Pisidian Antioch. Now, just so you know, help us understand um, when we're reading other passages of Scripture um, that Pisidian Antioch is in a region a Roman region, a Roman province called Galatia. Anybody ever heard of the book of Galatians? Okay, it's in our Bible, the book of Galatians. So when Paul writes to this letter, to, it's called to the Galatians, it's actually to like five different churches in that region. And one of those is Antioch Pisidian, or Pisidian Antioch, and th- which he visited here on the first, his first missionary journey. So the other uh, churches he writes are also ones he visited on his first missionary journey, which we're on right now with Paul. So it's important for us to see that. This is on his first missionary journey. All these churches are planted, and one of them is here at Pisidian Antioch. So in keeping with Paul's ministry plan of of, of going to the synagogue of the Jews first, and then to the Gentiles, that's what he does. He goes to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And you see that all through Paul's writing. In fact, it was the way that Jesus handled things too, and you even mentioned that in the Gospels. He was going to go to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles, which is the rest, rest of the nation. And in keeping with um, tradition, they, they sit down in the synagogue. And there was a custom in that day when a visiting rabbi would come to your synagogue, you were supposed to ask them if they had anything to say. Now, obviously, some things that had happened with Jesus... Uh, obviously, in, in, in Jerusalem and surrounding, had gotten their way to Antioch, uh, or Pisidian Antioch here, where we're at. Um, and maybe, maybe not, they got all the story about what happened to, to Saul, who became Paul, who used to be one of the chief teachers of Judaism. We, we don't know, but they ask him, do you have anything to say? Well, guess what Paul said? Like he always said, of course, I have something to say, all right? And, and so they invite him to speak, and, and look, look at the message here of, of Paul. Beginning in verse 16, we'll read down through uh, verse 25 and come back and look at a few things. Uh, Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen, let me briefly just say, Men of Israel is Jewish people. Those who fear God, God fears are Gentiles who have converted to Judaism. That's, that's who they are. That's his audience. The God of his people, Israel, chose, uh, of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them uh, Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John had proclaimed before uh, his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. But behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Now, first of all, let me make this point again. He understands who he's speaking to. He's speaking to Jews and those who have converted to Judaism. 
He understands that. That's very important. You understand who you're speaking to when you're delivering the message. Uh, and and um, this is exactly what Stephen did in Acts chapter 7. If you remember Acts chapter 7, Stephen stands up before the Sanhedrin. I mean, these are the leaders of Judaism. These are the teachers and, and, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those who, who, who led the nation of Israel. And he stands up and he gives this history of the nation of Israel and how God had brought the nation of Israel through all these things. And guess who listened to that sermon in Acts 7? Who's in the Sanhedrin? Paul. Old Saul of Tarsus who became Paul. He hears Stephen give this. And later on, not too long after that, God opens his eyes to the gospel. And all that Stephen said was true. So he remembers what Stephen, how he, he approached people. And he too records in, in a shorter uh, what we have recorded is a little shorter than, than Stephen did, the history of the nation of Israel. God's sovereign choice of the nation of Israel. He could have chosen any other nation to, to make his glory known. Now, he was concerned about all the nations, but he chose the nation of Israel to, 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 to speak through them and to use them to show his great love and his plan to rescue people from sin. And that's what Stephen did. And, and I believe that that marked Saul forever. Paul forever. And he does the same thing because it was that very message that God used to change his life. Um, so Paul follows his lead and proceeds to do the same thing and just tells how God sovereignly uh, and, and lovingly chose them. And, and, and so you think about this. He talks about the captivity in Egypt for 400 years. If you remember that the, the nation of Israel was there 400 years, they came. Joseph went there first, and then the rest of his brothers came, and his father came, and now, now we have the descendants of Abraham in Egypt, and they're, they're in bondage for 400 years. And then God miraculously leads them out, and they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Okay, and then, then, then you have the taking of the land and distributing it amongst the tribes. Ten more years. That's where you get the 450 years. 40, 400 plus 40 plus 10. That's as far as I go with my math. 450, but that's what happened. All right, and then, then it says, and they had this time where they had Samuel. He was the last of the judges. There's a period of time uh, that God used to, to lead the nation of Israel through uh, people called judges, and they, they were leaders. And Samuel was the last of, he was also a prophet, but he was the last of the judges. The people cried up and said, you know what? We want a king like everybody else. Look around us. We're the only nation that doesn't have a king. So God, give us a king. We want one, I wish Clint Rupley was here again today because I always use an example of, I can just imagine Saul, the King Saul, who I think that Saul, who became Paul, was named after because it would be a great honor to be named after the first king of Israel. And tall, dark, and handsome. I mean, exactly what you would want in a king. And that's who the people, the people want. They want Saul. Look at him. And they choose him and he, and, and he proves to be a man who's not after God's own heart. He doesn't have the heart of God. And he's selfish and it's all about him. So God rejects him, raises up a young shepherd boy named David, a man after God's own heart. Now hold on. Think about this. A man after God's own heart? Let's think about old David. Was he a man after God's own heart? Yes. Was he sinless? No. If you remember David, um, when, when, when it, says, it says when kings go off the war, David's at home. He's hanging out on his balcony at the palace. Probably like the summer palace in Russia. And he looks over and he sees a young girl named Bathsheba bathing. He says, get that girl for me. And he commits adultery with Bathsheba. And then realizes what he's done. He's in trouble. She's pregnant with my child. So he sends to have Uriah come 
her husband and says, hey, go be with your wife tonight as a reward. He's on the front lines. I mean, he's battling hard. He's fighting for the king and for God's nation. And he says, go lie with your wife. He says, not, not me. I won't do it. Not with my buddies who are out there sacrificing their life. No, I won't do it. So eventually, he sends Uriah back with a message. Um, uh, sends Uriah back with a messenger. And the messengers say, hey, when the fighting is the fiercest, put Uriah at the front and everybody else withdraw. And he has Uriah killed. That's David. And then um, Nathan the prophet confronts him lovingly. And David realizes that he has sinned. And he repents. And he cries out to God for forgiveness. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. That's Psalm 51. That's him crying out to God to, to renew me. David was a man of God's heart not because he was sinless. Because he was a man of repentance. When he sinned and he knew he sinned, he confessed his sin. He repented. He turned from that. And God used David greatly in the nation of Israel. So these are men that, the, the, as, he say, as Paul is saying this, they would, oh yeah, David, oh yeah, man of God's heart, we get it. And then he brings up John the Baptist, who was also a, a Jewish person. And John's, uh, John was to, to bridge the gap, in a sense, from the, the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, say the Messiah is coming, the promised one of all the Old Testament points to, he's coming, that was his job. So this was the, the beginning, the intro of Saul's, or Paul's sermon recounting the history of Israel. And by doing this, he shows how Jesus as Savior is part of the history of God's plan. That's what he's doing. This is part of the whole history. It's set in the history of your nation, the nation of Israel, God working through the nation of Israel because he was a descendant of David. He sets the message of the mission in its proper context to show that it didn't come out of nowhere. Who's Jesus? Where'd that come from? We never thought about a guy named Jesus who would come and do this and this. Well, let me tell you, it's what God's plan has been from the beginning. Don't you remember? And he has them go through their history. Oh, there was supposed to be a Messiah. Now, they're not convinced that Jesus is the guy yet, but at least they understand that he's saying Jesus is that guy. He's set in history in the context of history. Now, he moves on in his message. Let's look in verse 26. We'll go down through uh, 31. Brethren, sons of Abraham, fam, uh, Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by, con by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. When they had carried out all that was written according, uh, concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. Well, here we see Paul recount the life and ministry of Jesus in his message. First part of his message, he shows how Jesus fits in the context of history, the history of the nation of Israel and God's plan for people to be rescued from sin. And now he, he talks about the life and ministry of this Jesus. He says, to, verse 26, to, this, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. God's given us this message, so we're bringing it to you. And what is that message? Well, verse 28 we see him uh, talk about <coughs> the death of Jesus. He was executed. Verse 29, the cross. That's how he was crucified. That's how, I mean, that's how he was killed. He was, it was crucifixion on a cross, hung on a cross. Verse um, 29 also, see, he was buried. He was laid him in a tomb. All right? And then verse 
30, but God. And every time you see a but God, you better listen up. This is huge. But God raised him from the dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked the course of the world. This is Ephesians 2. And he says, but God, being rich in his mercy. But gods are huge. In the Bible, you need to be, and we're supposed to pay attention. He says, but God raised him. It's a resurrection. This is the very thing that Paul called the, called the gospel when writing to the church of Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, he says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received and which you also stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I pre preached to you, unless you believe in vain. So what is the message of the gospel? What's the, the heart of that message of the gospel, the good news that, that brings about salvation for, for those who obey it, those who trust in it? It says, verse 3, For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Sound familiar? Paul's message was consistent. Here he is in Pisidian Antioch. He's standing before these Jews and these God-fearing Gentiles who become Jews in a sense. And he's saying, it's about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the heart of the message of Jesus, the gospel. He's the heart. He's the center of the message of the gospel. Without Jesus, there's no good news is what gospel means at all. It's all bad news. And he's saying... It's about his death, his burial, his resurrection. This is the message of salvation. This is the message you've been waiting to hear your whole lives. Well, let's go on in, in, in verse 27. Um, or, uh, look what Paul says. He says, For those who live in Jerusalem and the rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. Amazingly, they had been reading the scriptures every single day. I alluded to this a few minutes ago. And they, they pointed to Jesus all over. See, the main message of the Bible is what? Redemption through Jesus. In the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, we have Jesus as introduced. We don't know his name yet, but we know there's going to be someone who's going to come and save us from the penalty of sin, from Genesis 3.15. And that it's, it, I've mentioned this before, and some of you, you've got to go back. I don't know if you can find these old programs anymore, but the Alfred Hitchcock programs. How many of you remember those programs? All right, and I'm looking. You, seen, you must have watched Nick at Night or something, all right? <laughs> Brandon, you're pretty young to remember that, all right? And they had the beginning of this, it, it had this silhouette. It was just dark up there on the screen and, and had the crazy music, funny music we would think is weird now and, he, and, he walk, and all of a sudden this guy walks in he kind of steps into this silhouette there and the light comes on it's Alfred Hitchcock but if you knew Alfred Hitchcock you could see the outline of his face he has a very unique shaped, shaped head alright his is more round mine's more square alright so if you went like this you go that's Brian's head alright well, we knew this was Alfred Hitchcock's and you could see it but you couldn't see all the color the Old Testament's like that. It's kind of the, the outline of Alfred Hitchcock. And you can't see all the color, but you know it's pointing to someone. And when the right guy comes in, he sticks his head in there and the lights come on. Oh, yeah. And that's what we were meant to do with the scriptures. And they were seeing this outline of the Messiah. And when Jesus came on the scene and stuck his head in there, the lights came on, they should have gone, oh, yeah, but they don't. Because they didn't understand the scriptures. They, they had read them every day. They had been in the synagogue reading them. That's what they're doing right now. Paul is doing this. They're reading the scriptures. And, 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 he, and they missed it. And this is such a sobering thought. It reminds me that we need the Holy Spirit to open our hearts and minds to understand the Scripture. We, we, they couldn't do it on their own. We can't do it on our own. We can't understand it. It's not just a, a, a book of words. It's God's Word. And we need His help to understand what it means. 
That's why it's so important that we, we read, when we read the scriptures, that we cry out to God. God, help me. Help me understand. And if you've done that, you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And you cry out to Him. You've experienced it, I guarantee it. You've got, whoa. How did I miss that? Wow. That's more amazing than I thought. I think as Paul writes in, in Ephesians, he says, that's the glorious gospel of the blessed God. That's what happens. And, 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 and they had been reading the scripture and they missed the whole thing. Well, the important thing I want, I want just to remind us here of, of the 26 through 31 is that the message of the mission must include the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's central to the gospel. It's, it's that that paid the debt of our sin. Jesus could have come and he lived his whole life, performed a bunch of miracles, done a bunch of amazing things. But if, he didn't have, if we didn't have the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his life means nothing. We're still in our sins, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Without the resurrection, we're still in our sins. We're the most to be pitied. Now, let's move on here. Look at verse 32 through 37. He says, And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. That God has fulfilled this promise to our children, that he raised up Jesus, and has also written the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he also says in another psalm, You will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, and was laid among his fathers, and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Now notice in verses 32 and 33, Paul says that, that, that what he preaches is the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise. It was a promise. And, and Paul shows how the message of the mission, the gospel of Jesus, is the fulfillment of prophecy. So first it's set in history. It didn't come out of nowhere. Jesus is a central focus, his death, burial, and resurrection. And now he's saying that this is fulfillment of prophecy, of promises of God. Jesus' ministry is, and, and, and the salvation that comes from that. He does, he does this, interesting enough, by three Old Testament passages of Scripture. He's, he makes a statement, and he's going to prove it. He's going to cross-reference. All right? And, and this is what he's going to do. But first, he begins in verse 33, and he, and he quotes Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, which they all knew. Most of them had it memorized. And he says this, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And, and that points to the, the, the resurrection and it highlighted and pointed to Jesus and his role as Messiah and his sonship. Okay, it says, I have begotten you. The Father had begotten the Son. And his, his title and his office in a sense, his role as the Son. He proceeds from the Father. He's of the same substance as the Father. We don't have time to go into all to the deity of Christ. But that's what he's pointing to here. The fact that he was risen again showed that. And he quotes his psalm that points to that. Then he goes on in verse 33 and he quotes Isaiah 55, 3. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. And now if Jesus is not risen from the grave, the holy and sure blessings of David won't happen. They don't happen. You don't get the holy and sure blessings of David because David died. And without the resurrection of Jesus who that psalm refers to there's no blessings that come from that. And then in verse 35 he quotes Psalm 1610. He says you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. 
And this obviously speaks about Jesus, the Messiah's resurrection as well. Now some would say that this, these scriptures, all three of them, they don't point to Jesus. They point to certain experiences in David's life. Many people have said that. that that's just about David. There's nothing beyond David here. It's just David. It's not talking about the Messiah at all. So Paul knows that they're thinking that. So look what he does in verses 36 and 37. Now for David... After he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and he died and was laid among his fathers and, and he underwent decay. If that's about David, we got a problem. Because it says here that your Holy One will not undergo decay. And then verse 37 he says, but he whom God raised did not undergo decay. And then obviously David went underwent, that's what he's saying, David went under decay, he, was, he decayed. Jesus did not. Who do you think this psalm's talking about? Not David. The one who would come through David's lineage, the Messiah. He would not undergo decay. That the resurrection is huge and the resurrection is proven from Scripture. And it's a fulfillment of a promise that God made. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. Paul is stressing here over and over again in these three cross-references, these Scriptures, that God kept His promise in the person of Jesus. Fulfilled prophecy. Let's look again at verses 38 and 39. Therefore, let it be known, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Let me read that again. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Paul in verse 38 says, therefore. And we always ask the question when we see a therefore is what? What's it, what's it there for? And it's pointing back to this whole thing about the resurrection. That Jesus did die. He was buried. He rose again. And based on this, through him, therefore, through him, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. It's because of what Jesus did that we can be forgiven. He, he, he says to the audience, listen to this. Your sins can be forgiven. Your sins can be forgiven. And I got an all bold in my notes, so I wouldn't forget it. Understand who he's talking to. He's talking to a bunch of people their whole life have been looking for forgiveness of sins. They've been working every single day of their life so that they could be forgiven. And there's still not forgiveness. There's still no forgiveness. And he comes and proclaims because of Jesus. Your sins can be forgiven. That is an amazing statement. When we look at our own heart and our own life. And we realize that we've sinned. And if they were honest, they understood they sinned. To hear the message that your sins can be forgiven is amazing. So what else does he say? How? I mean, he answers the how question. He says that everyone who believes is freed from all things. Speaking of their sins. They're free from that. All those who trust in what Jesus did through his death, burial, and resurrection are freed from all things. And the word free here is from the same root as justified. And it's actually translated justified in many other passages in the scripture. 
It's the very same word, freed. And, and some of your translations even use the word justified. The reason it's translated freed is because of uh, the, 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 the tense and mood of the verb and stuff like that. It's a little bit, has a little different connotation, but it's from the same thing, has the same meaning. Um, he, to, to make, this is what justified means, to make right by freeing us from the penalty of our sin. To make us right with God. To, to justify Make us right with God by freeing us from that penalty. It means to be fully accepted by God. Fully accepted by God. Not on a waiver. Not, well, I'm going to accept part of you. No, we're fully accepted by God. This happened because Jesus paid the penalty that the justice of God demanded. God, he's loving. We'd all agree with that, right? It says God's love. But he's also a just God. And he must punish sin. He must punish sin or he wouldn't be a just God. What we call a judge who knew someone was guilty who just came in and says, oh, innocent, no penalty. We call him a what kind of judge? An unjust judge. He's not doing his job. God in his character has to be just. So he poured out his justice on his son. He paid the penalty that we deserved. He, he stepped up to, the, to, to, to the, the, the judge's bench, in a sense, and he says, I'll pay it. And he paid it. So God could be absolutely loving and just at the same time. That's amazing. And we see this, Paul record this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus knew no sin. He was sinless. He made him to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteous of God. He exchanged his righteousness for our sin. We got his righteousness, he got our sin, and he paid the death penalty for our sin. Notice too that Paul further clarifies this freedom by saying, from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. As I mentioned, these people have been trying to free and justify themselves all their lives, every day, by keeping the law of Moses. You might know how many laws there are in, in detailed laws there are in the in, in the Old Testament in the Law of Moses. I remember that, that that number, six hundred and thirteen. Who could remember six hundred and thirteen laws? Who could do that? I couldn't. I have a hard time with the ten that summarizes six hundred and thirteen. Not only they couldn't they remember, even they could remember they couldn't keep them and they saw that over and over again they couldn't meet God's hold, holy standard. And neither can we. And Paul, Paul summarizes this that, 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 when, he, when he says, he says here, first he says, from which you could not be free. He frees us from what we, the law couldn't do. The law couldn't make us right with God. It couldn't forgive our sin. We could never keep it. And he, and he summarizes this in Romans 3, 20 through 22. Look what it says. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. See the word justified or freed in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's the purpose of the law, to show us our sin. It was to be a mirror for people looking and so, oh, no, I, I don't meet God's standard. What am I going to do? God, help me. That's the response it's supposed to have. It, shows our not, it gives us the knowledge of sin. But now, verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, here it goes, prophesied, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there's no distinction. It's talking about Jews and Greeks. There's no distinction. It's through Jesus. It's through faith in Jesus we can be freed. We can trust in what he did on our behalf. 
And this message is so urgent, Paul goes on to say in verses 40 and through 41 to close our time together here this morning. He says, therefore, take heed. Listen up is what he's saying. And listen to what I've said. You better believe what I'm saying. So that the things spoken of the prophets in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers, and marvel, and perish. For I am accomplishing a work in your days, a, wi- a work which you will never believe, through someone, though someone should describe it to you. Anybody know where those come from? Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 5. And I preached through the book of Habakkuk. We dealt with this. You're thinking, who, he preached through the book of Habakkuk. How boring could that have been? It's an amazing book. And, and this is kind of the central part of the book right here, the very beginning, verse 5 of chapter 1. And, and what he's talking about, he's, he's talk, he says that, listen, marvel what's going to happen. This is going to be amazing. I'm going to use someone more wicked than you, the nation of Israel at the time, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. They're terrible. I mean, they're the worst possibly in the whole world. I'm going to use them to bring judgment and discipline on you because you've walked away from me. So many people quote this verse and say, God's going to do work in our day. That's a misquote and understanding of the verse. Like it's going to be something good. No, this is all about judgment. He says, take heed so you don't end up in the same place they did under the just judgment of God because of your sin. Don't be like them. Don't be stubborn. And I don't think it's, take heed, you're going to hell and I hope you get there. It's not that kind of attitude. It's a loving plea with these people. Don't end up like the nation of Israel did then. I love you. Please listen. Please listen to this great news that God did something about your sin. You can be freed from all things and be made right with God because of what Jesus did. It's a plea of love. He's urgent. He understands what's at stake. It's eternity. That's what's at stake. He gets the message of the mission right. And so should we. Well, so what? What, what, what all this? It's a great, amazing story of Paul's sermon um, here in the beginning, really, of his first missionary journey. Um, I just want to remind us that we are Christ ambassadors. Way more, in being, more important than being an ambassador for our country. And I love our country. But it will die and it will pass away. But our call to be ambassadors for Christ will never pass away. We're called to present the message of the mission, the gospel. Paul's presentation of the the message of the gospel serves as a model for us so that we can fulfill the mission of the church and taking the message to the nations, which begins right here in Jerusalem, right? In in, in the Lake Jackson area, Brazilport area, and and beyond Judea and the greater Houston area, and we just keep going. We're all called to that. So let me just remind us of some things. Maybe give us some exhortation here in applying this passage. Number one, present the gospel in the proper context of history. And and this needs to be done more in our day than any other time because people don't know their Bibles. And we got to help people understand their Bibles. I wish Clint was here. I remember Clint Rupley, and he didn't mind me saying this at all. Clint loves Jesus now. When he came here, he didn't. And he didn't grow up in a church, and he didn't really understand the Bible. And I'd be talking about a guy, you know, King David. He didn't know who King David was. Who's Saul? I don't know who that is. I don't, what's the prophets? What's, he had no idea. So thankfully, got, Clint and I became great, great friends and spent a lot of time together just to talk about the Bible. And it helped him set the whole thing in his, this historical context. All right? And th- this is a thing that's been going on since the beginning of the world, Clint. Oh, gosh, this is cool. And pretty soon, about six months later, God used the gospel to break through Clint's heart. 
And he trusted in the one who could free him from all things. We've got to set it in history. We've got to make sure people, we know where they're at, know our audience, right? And set it in history so they see that this is the plan of God from all history. Secondly, present the gospel with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection at the center. Paul said this is the gospel. He said this has got to be there. Because without the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no forgiveness of sin. He doesn't pay for our sin if it's not there. Make sure that that's involved. It's about Jesus. That's why the gospel is so good. So present the gospel with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection at the center. Thirdly, present the gospel as fulfillment of prophecy. Take people back. I mean, there's more than... He just gave us three. I mean, there's hundreds of prophecies that made this outline. So when Jesus showed up, we would go, oh yeah, that's the Messiah. That's the one who's going to come and take care of the sin problem of the world. Go back and see all of the prophecies. There's hundreds of them about the Messiah in the Old Testament. Take people back there and show this is, this is fulfillment of prophecy. That were prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. It's amazing when you look at all the fulfillment of prophecy. Fourthly, present the gospel by urgently and lovingly calling people to be justified through faith in Jesus. I'll read that again. Present the gospel by urgently and lovingly calling people to be justified through faith in Jesus. To be made right with God. To be forgiven. To be made new. To be free. To be presented with great joys, it says in Jude. That God is justified, made right. By what? Faith in Jesus. By trusting in what He has done for us. And my prayer is you've done that this morning. And if you hadn't, you'd do it today. And for those who have, let's take the message of the mission where God has called us, right where we are, and watch God use it to change the lives of people. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and the clarity of it, Lord, for, for using Paul here in Pisidian Antioch uh, to take this message to these people. And next week we'll see the response of the people. And, um, but Lord, our, our job is just to take it. Our, our job is not the response. It's not our responsibility to how people respond. But Lord, help us do it in such a way that honors you to set it in history and make Jesus the center of it and his death, burial, and resurrection. And, and, and that, that, Lord, you've been promising this for, for, since the beginning of the world. That, that, and you came through on your promise, Lord, and, and then help us exhort people that they can be freed, to, to give the message that your sins can be forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ, everyone we come in contact with. Because, Lord, the stakes are high. Eternity is at stake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.